Okay, thank you very much. We're going to introduce the next speaker now. It uh, gives me a great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Marion Peters, who's an internationally known expert in the treatment of hepatitis. And she's going to, uh, excuse me, she's from the University of California at San Francisco. And she's going to talk to us today about hepatitis C virus infection, new drugs, and new strategies. Dr. Peters? Thank you very much. Um, some of the slides in your handout I'm not going to use because I put in newer data from last week, uh, just as a little update, and they'll be available online. What I really wanted to talk about today is which way the field of HCV, HIV co-infection was moving to give you a flavor of where we were, where we are, and where we're going. You know that liver disease is uh, the, second, the most important cause of death or the most common cause of death after uh, HIV, AIDS, in patients who have HIV. So if you compare HIV co-infection to HCV alone, we know that there's a higher HCV RNA in the co-infected patient. There's faster liver disease progression. There's an increased incidence of cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. And there's more drug toxicity in patients who have viral hepatitis than in patients with HIV alone. So here's your uh, first question. HCV RNA is useful in prognosis, useful in treatment. HCV progresses in all HIV patients, and alcohol is a cofactor. Please vote what you feel like. I think I pressed the button, right? Oh, maybe not. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Great. So the HCV RNA level is not useful in prognosis. It's only useful for treatment. You can have a level of 4 million and live to be 100, and a level of 50,000 and need a liver transplant. Uh, as you know, all is never a good multi-choice question because it doesn't progress in all, but in those that does progress, it appears to be concertina down or faster. And alcohol is clearly a cofactor in our patients. When we compare HCV to HIV, they're both uh, single-stranded positive-strand RNA viruses. They both have very high mutation rates, but HCV is a couple of logs even higher than HIV. Viral load is not prognostic in HIV, on HCV on the left, but it is in HIV. The goal for hepatitis C is to cure it and clear infection, whereas for HIV it's remission. There's not a vaccine for either. HCV does not become latent, which is why you can cure it. It does not integrate. And unlike HIV, it is, a, is curable. So the other goals, if you don't get a cure, you want to increase, uh, normalize ALT, which improves the patient's quality of life, improve liver histology, decrease the risk of cirrhosis and cancer, which in turn improves survival. And we thought about many of the issues on the bottom of prevention of disease progression because only half of our patients responded to therapy. I think now when we're looking at much higher number, percentage of patients responding to therapy, we may forget about improving their survival and go for the cure, which will improve their survival. So the second and last question is, Interferon ribavirin is standard of care. Majority of patients are candidates. Genotypes 1 and 4 have a lower SVR, sustained virologic response. Neuropsychiatric side effects are common, and triple therapy is standard of care. You can choose whichever one you like, because obviously more than one of possible answers.
Okay. So everybody got the first one right. It is standard of care. The majority of patients are not candidates. This one is correct. Genotypes 1 and 4 have lower responses to treatment. Genotype 1 is 70% of U.S. population with HCV, and they're the poorest responders. Neuropsychiatric side effects are common, and triple therapy is not approved by the FDA. So it doesn't matter. This is looking at barriers to treatment, showing that about 30% of patients are candidates for treatment. And it doesn't matter if you look at HCV mono-infection, if you look at HCV co-infection, if you look at a VA clinic, an inner suburban clinic, a university hospital. Every study shows the same number. And the reason people aren't candidates, many of them have psychiatric illness, ongoing drug use, which is a big problem in managing patients, non-adherence, end-stage liver disease. Interferon is contraindicated in patients with decompensated cirrhosis because it kills the virally infected hepatocyte to eradicate HCV, and if you only have a couple of hepatocytes and you kill them, you've cleared the virus and killed the patient. So you must not use it in patients with decompensated cirrhosis. So, when this, so what this is telling us as, is at present of the 5 million people in the U.S. with hepatitis C, something like a couple of hundred thousand have received therapy. We need new drugs. And even though when we started we had an absolutely appalling response on the left with interferon uh, three times a week, we've come up to 50% in the mono-infected patients, leaving half the patients of the 30% being cured. But even with interferon-based therapies, there are multiple side effects, neuropsychiatric, hematologic, it induces or interferon induces autoimmune disease. So if your patient has a family history, you may bring on, bring on the autoimmune disease faster. It's not well tolerated, has many contraindications, and therefore many of the patients are not candidates for treatment. So that is the push to find newer tolerable regimens, which is what has happened with the long-awaited new era with, direct, era with direct acting antivirals. The two that are approved at the moment are Vesepravir and Telaprevir, protease inhibitors. They have an, a sustained virologic response that is negative HCV RNA at 24 weeks after therapy, which in, in, indicates a cure and clearance of infection. They only can be used in genotype 1 patients. They don't work against genotype 2 or 3. They can only be used with interferon and ribavirin. If you give them alone, this audience would know very well, all you end up with is resistance. What's also good is that you can do response-guided therapy. You can see if the patient has an early response, and if they do, you can shorten the therapy. However, there are issues with side effects, with resistance, and big issues with drug-drug interactions. And I'm going to go over the data for HIV, HCV patients. This is the data for the mono-infected. For naive patients, about 70% respond. If patients previously failed to respond to interferon, so-called non-responders, about half respond. If they responded and then lost the response, it's as good as if they'd never seen it, so 70% respond. With both of these drugs, you can shorten therapy. You still need ribavirin. We don't know what ribavirin does, but we still need it. It decreases breakthrough, it decreases 
the virus coming back during therapy. It decreases relapse, the virus coming back after therapy, and it therefore increases the chance of a cure. Triple therapy is more effective for African Americans who had a lower response to interferon-based therapy. It's more effective for cirrhotics, but there's more side effects and more discontinuation. So this is the virus of uh, 3,000 amino acid with polyproteins on the left and then all these proteins required for processing and uh, production of the virion. But it doesn't look like that in the cell. In fact, it's within the endoplasmic reticulum. You have this replicase complex that includes all the enzymes required for viral processing and assembly and they're very intimately associated with each other. So you could see that if you had a protease inhibitor, an RNA-dependent uh, polymerase inhibitor, you would attack different parts of the virus and turn off viral replication. You do need to know about the types of response. So this is the level of HCV RNA on the left and on the, the um, x-axis weeks of treatment. And you can see that if addition of an agent does nothing to the viral uh, HCV RNA. That's a null response. If it comes down a couple of logs but doesn't become negative, that's a partial response. If it becomes negative and then comes back during treatment, that's a breakthrough. And if it is undetectable and then comes back after treatment, that's a relapse. Why is that important? Well, it tells us a lot about duration of therapy for your particular patient and will help us to guide therapy in the future and maybe read some of the trials that are going on at present. So when you look at a response, an RVR is negative HCV RNA at four weeks. This is the old... Um, Early virologic response, which was neg complete EVR, was negative HCV RNA at 12 weeks. We're not using that anymore with direct-acting antivirals. We're looking at an extended RVR, which means become negative fast and you stay negative. Then this is the end of treatment response and the sustained virologic response. I will tell you the sustained virologic response has been defined as negative HCV RNA at six months after cessation of therapy. Recent data from last week clearly shows that SVR12 appears to be the same as SVR24. So with new direct-acting antivirals, getting a negative HCV RNA 12 weeks after therapy appears to equal a cure. So what are the similarities and the differences in the studies? I put this slide in. It's for naive mono-infected patients. Tilaprevir, you start all three drugs together and give Tilaprevir for 12 weeks and then continue Pegriba for 48 weeks. Bisepravir, you have a lead-in with Pegriba. Then you start Bisepravir and continue the three together. They use slightly different interferons. Tilaprevir uses the 40KD uh, pegylated interferon and Brisepravir the 12 kilodalton. They both require food, but Tilaprevir requires a fatty meal. They must be given every eight hours, not three times a day. Patients set their alarm, get up, have their bowl of ice cream, and then take their Tilaprevir. Uh, their duration depends on whether they get that early virologic response. And it's fascinating that about half the patients are candidates for shortened therapy. So no longer we're giving them the 48 weeks. If they have an early response, you can shorten the therapy. To give you an SVR around 60 to 75% with a pretty low relapse rate. 
but they have significant side effects. Tilaprovir with a rash that appears to increase with time on therapy. They both have anemia, which can be very severe. Uh, Tilaprovir has pruritus and nausea and bisepravir a bad taste. This is the response. Now I'm going to just talk about co-infection. That's given you the sort of baseline of the mono-infection. So if you look at co-infection, you can see on the left that genotypes 1 and 4 had much lower responses than on the right, the genotype non-1 patients. And we've known this for many years in many different studies. The way less than 50% of genotype 1 patients respond to therapy. So that's why it's exciting that we have these new studies with triple therapy in genotype 1 patients. So this is the telaprovir data that was presented at Croy by Doug Dietrich showing co-infected patients up in part A, that's the top, no antiretroviral therapy, given triple telaprovir for 12 weeks, followed by pegriber up to 48 weeks, or placebo. In the bottom, they are on selected antiretrovirals, uh, Favarins, Tenofovir, FTC, or Atazanavir. And again, they were randomized to either triple therapy for 12 weeks, followed by PEG-RIBA up to 48, or placebo for 12 weeks, followed by PEG-RIBA up to 48. And what he showed is, I think I have to make a very strong point here, that if you don't notice anything else, please remember these are the smallest studies you're ever going to see in your life. This is not an ACTG 1500 study. This is not even a little ACTG 500 study. These are hepatitis C minute studies. Uh, uh, the most famous study I'll show you was 10 patients in every group. And when you say 100% response, that means 10 lucky people. And they selected their patients very, very carefully. So don't go home and say, I'm going to give X to all my patients the minute it comes out, because it's based on teeny, teeny patients. But it's encouraging. That's why we're excited. So here is the results at four weeks uh, on therapy. And you can see on the left whether you're on no antiretrovirals, efavirenz-based or atazanavir-based, you have a great undetectable HCV RNA, 70%. The same as we saw in the mono-infected compared to on the right, PEG-RIBA, very, very few patients responded. Then if you look SDR12, that's 12 weeks post-treatment, overall 74%, which was nearly 30% increase over PEG-RIBOR alone. And then I put in next to it the mono-infected data. These weren't uh, part, these are across trials, not part of the same trial. But you can see that the co-infected data is similar to the mono-infected data. And I think that's the most exciting thing, that with these new direct-acting antivirals, we're really in the same realm as the HCV mono-infected data. Oh, well, maybe we're going to stay here forever. No. This is the Bisepravir study. So the Bisepravir study, as I told you, had a lead-in of PEG-RIBA, and then you added bisepravir or placebo, up to 48 weeks, and then follow the patient. And this is the response over time. On, in the orange, yes, orange, is bisepravir, and in the yellow is pegriber alone. And you can see the marked increase in HCV RNA undetectable. Week 8 of triple therapy, week 12, week 24, end of treatment, and then the SVR12, again, 34%, around 30% increase 
over peg rye. But these numbers are a little larger, but not much. And this is compar comparable to the HCV mono-infected data, which is what, the 66%, telling us again that whichever drug you use, you do have a marked improvement. However, there's a big issue with drug-drug interactions. Tilaprovir is a CYP3A4 and P-glycoprotein substrate. It also is an inhibitor of CYP3A4. Vasepravir is both a substrate and inhibitor of CYP3A4, but a major part is uh, through uh, aldiketoreductase. So this means pretty much everything you ask your patient to have is going to be affected. And the list in the packet insert is table five is about this long in tiny print. So what happened actually in the studies? You heard from Dr. Gulick this morning that the normal volunteers had really quite significant uh, decrease in uh, protease, HIV protease inhibitor and also a decrease in dose of the seprevir. But this is the real data from the study. They weren't randomized by the antiretroviral, so you can't really compare them. But what I'm showing you on the right is the triple therapy with Brisepravir Pegriba of the patients who cured, who cleared their virus. And 80, uh, 40 of the 61 were on atazanavir, lopinavir, or darunavir. And two-thirds of all of those patients cleared virus and didn't relapse their HIV except for three patients. And these three patients are shown here, two on atazanavir and one on lopinavir. There are in total um, seven patients, three of 34 on 9% were just on PEG-RIBA and they had detectable HIV during therapy compared to three of 64 or 5% who were on the triple therapy. And you can see this patient was, uh, had detectable HIV at 24 weeks at end of treatment and you can see how it increased presumably when we stopped the interferon, which we know can decrease HIV by about a log. The second patient became detectable at 24 weeks, and the third patient became detectable at 36 weeks and again had an increase at week four. The only subject who had a change in antiretroviral was the middle patient on lopinavir, who interestingly got changed to atazanavir when they became detectable because they didn't have the dear doctor letter, it was before it. So I think the point of the, these data is that many times what you see in healthy volunteers hasn't panned out in the HIV patient. So we need to know what really happens in the HIV patient. What we know now is if the patient is not on antiretroviral, they can either be on brisepravir, excuse me, or telaprovir. The data are clear. If the patient's taking raltegravir-based with two NRTIs, they can be on either. This isn't in your handout. If the patient, however, is in atazanavir, the data suggests you should use telaprovir at standard dose. And if you're going to use brisepravir, you should do it with very, very careful PK evaluations in a study, such as the ACTG 5294, which opened last week. And I think patients, the data from the phase two study suggests that if patients are monitored very carefully, we may be able to work out which protease inhibitors they can take. If patients are on efavirenz, if they're taking telaprovir, they need to use a higher dose because telaprovir decreased um, the exposure to efavirenz. So if they're on efavirenz, you really 
shouldn't be putting them on Bisepravir outside a study, but again, they would be candidates for 5294. I am promoting that study. Um, this isn't in your handout. It's the shockwave. Peg Riber is 40,000. If you add either Tilaprovir or Bisepravir, you add another 50,000. This is not cheap. The good news is there are a lot of studies around for co-infected patients, not just through the ACTG, but also through drug companies. And I really encourage you to put your patients in studies. Not only will it expand our knowledge, but it gives the patient access when most of the insurance companies are working out ways not to give your patient access. So what are the big issues in HCV therapy. I've shown you the genotype difference. Two is the mo always the most responsive, more than three, and one is always the least responsive. We now know that with direct-acting antivirals, 1A is a poorer responder than 1B, and that's because it only takes, if you're using a protease inhibitor, it only takes one mutation to get resistance with 1A, and it takes two to get resistance, two mutations to get resistance with 1B. I'll show you a tiny bit of data about IL-28, that CC genotype is better and more responsive to interferon. We still know that if you have prior exposure to interferon, you, you are harder to treat, even with direct-acting antivirals. We know if you have more severe disease, you may be harder to treat, and we know that drug-drug interactions are going to be a big issue. So this is data that's not in your handout showing the IL-28 data. On the left is the, uh, it's the sustained virologic response depending whether you have the CC favorable genotype, the TT or terrible genotype, or the TC genotype. And all I want to show you is if you CC, it doesn't matter if you're African-American, Hispanic, or, or overall combined, you have a better chance of clearing your virus than if you have TT. And, however, the African-Americans have, even the CC, have a lower response. So it's thought that IL-28B genotype accounts for about 50% of the poor response of African Americans. It doesn't account for 100%. This is a study looking at what happens if you don't respond to interferon, if you're a null responder, if you don't get that one log drop, and you continue on, this is the study with Brisepravir, but I predict it was the same with Tilaprovir. So these are patients who didn't respond in the red after four weeks of Pegriber. And then they were studied again at eight weeks after four weeks of triple therapy. And basically, no patient who didn't subsequently have a three-log decline ended up getting an SVR. So if you didn't respond to interferon in the first place, but when we added triple therapy, you became undetectable, or in green had a more than five log decline, in red more than four, in blue less than three, and the one on the left is zero, diddly squat. So you can see, if you look at the combined study, that even people who didn't have that interferon responsiveness, if they then became undetectable at eight weeks, they had a very high chance of clearing virus. But the majority of patients were in the other group where they had a much lower chance. And this has suggested that people look at week four and week eight and decide if they're going to continue to torture the patient with therapy. Now I want to show you some new data. There's actually an explosion of data appearing at uh, ASLD in November, at Croy, and at Easel last week. So I've only selected a few 
different pieces to make the point that interferon-free regimens, all oral regimens, are in study, are successful, and will be available much sooner than we ever thought. That interferon is actually going out and all orals are coming in. And making the, some of the points I made before, this slide shows you that you're better off having genotype 1B than 1A. This is a study of a protease inhibitor and a non-nuke polymerase inhibitor looking at 12-week SBR responses. And you can see in green that the genotype 1B had a 69% response with just two oral medications and ribavirin, but genotype 1A had a lower response. Not only did they have a lower uh, end-of-treatment response, they had a higher relapse. So you, you can't choose your genotype, but genotype 1B, less, more resistant to mutations than 1A, has a better response. This is a slide to show you that unlike what you say in HIV, that you blow the class, you don't appear to blow the class if you develop protease inhibitor resistance to bisoprevir or telaprevir. This is an early study of a different uh, protease inhibitor that, unlike bisoprevir and telaprevir, is pangenotypic. So you can see G for genotype 1, it's highly sensitive. Genotype um, 2 and 4 also. Genotype 3 had a clear dose response, but it was very sensitive and decreased HCV RNA 4 and 5 logs at higher doses. So this study and others tell us that even if you develop resistance to bisoprevir or telaprevir, you may still be able to use a different class with pangenotypic and against known resistant viruses. This is a study of the 7977 polymerase inhibitor with ribavirin with and without pegylated interferon. And I'm going to show you all of the parts of this. No, I'm not. I'm going to show you nearly all the parts of this study. And this is the genotype 2-3, the easy to treat, where you can see on the left, the first blue bar, 10 out of 10 patients were cured of their hepatitis C with just 12 weeks of an oral medication. And on the next three, it didn't matter if you gave four, eight, or 12 weeks of interferon, you can't beat 10 out of 10. We knew this data last year. So this is the data comparing genotype 1, the harder to treat, either naive patients or those who had previously failed to respond to interferon. And... They were treated, the naives, there were a large number of patients, 25. The prior null responders had the usual 10. And they were followed with SBR 4 and 12. And this is the null responder data that um, I forgot to tell you that in the null responders end of... Do I have that slide next? No. SBR4 data on nine subjects, they were all, um, nine of the ten were undetectable at end of treatment, but eight of the nine relapsed, and they relapsed very quickly. Six of them by week two, two of them by week three. So the only prior null responder, only one of the ten patients, ended up being cured by this very small, short, two-oral medication, 797, the polymerase inhibitor plus ribavirin. And she was a young Caucasian woman, CC genotype, minimal fibrosis. And we know the best responders, women are better than men, CC is better than TT, minimal fibrosis is better than... Um, cirrhosis, young is better than old. So she was sort of primed to respond. And there was 
extremely well tolerated. So what about the naive patients? They had 25 patients, 23 of them were undetectable four weeks after completion of treatment. Three had a relapse, so they're undetectable at the end and then relapse. No breakthroughs, and the mutation that's known in vitro to occur wasn't seen in any patient. And this is a summary slide showing on the left the genotype 2-3, where 10 out of 10 responded, and you can see they were 10 out of 10 at week 2. If you go to the far right, if you're a prior null responder, it took up to four weeks to get a response. Then if you go to the second to the right, the genotype 1 treatment naive, it took up to four weeks. And end of treatment, they were all undetectable, but at SBR4, 88%. That's still pretty extraordinary with two drugs and genotype 1. If you're a prior null responder, these two drugs look great at four weeks, the second bar on the, from the left, but you can see that you started to lose it immediately after stopping treatment, suggesting that it might be great, but you need more or longer. So what do we know about the two drugs we have licensed now? They have good efficacy, 30% over PEG-RIBA alone in both groups, Drug-drug interactions are an issue. They only treat genotype 1, and you have to use it with PEG and RIBA. They have major tolerability issues, and adherence is a big deal. There are many, many contraindicated drugs, including protease inhibitors, rifampin, uh, herbs and spices, including St. John wort, statins, and so I didn't, this will be on the, um, website, but this is a great website for drug-drug interaction, hep-druginteractions.org, hep-druginteractions.org. It's the University of Liverpool. You can put in your two drugs and it'll light up like a Christmas tree. And if the patient's on 12 drugs, It'll go bananas. But it helps you really decide what are the interactions because if you're not a pharmacist, you're not going to be able to keep this in your head and you can't do it on Hippocrates. It crashes the program. So this is where we are here with PEG-RIBA and direct-acting antivirals. And we all thought a year and a bit ago we were going to the right with PEG, RIBA plus X. But it's very clear we're going to the left with interferon-free regimens. There are multiple interferon-free regimens. It's going to be discussion about what's going to be the best drug. Are we going to end up with a combination one pill a day, which would be the dream for patients for 12 weeks? Or are we going to have to use multiple pills? We're certainly going to get away from the TID therapy. So this major change, which won't be here next week, leads us to think about what are we going to do right now? I think right now we're going to select who to treat. So if you have somebody who has moderate to severe fibrosis or severe fibrosis F3, F4, either a lot of fibrosis or cirrhosis, that's a patient who may not be able to wait the couple of week, years to be treated. How do you assess fibrosis? Well, there are a number of ways, clinical exam, liver biopsy, serum tests, or a fibro scan. We know that controlling the HIV makes a big difference to the outcome. We know adherence is a major issue with these drugs. Remember, they selected... 140 patients who could do the three, every eight hours medication. They were highly selected individuals. We know that alcohol is, has a negative adverse effect on response. We don't know that for the DAAs because 10 out of 10, you don't think they had anybody who even knew how to spell alcohol in their study. So we don't have all the data or the large studies Yet, we have large studies of safety, 
where some of the drugs have been pulled together to give you data. But I think what we're looking for in the future is going to be all orals, a combination of drugs, lower uh, side effects, more tolerable, easier to be adherent, but there's still going to be drug-drug interactions that we need to learn about. Thank you. Dr. Peters is my hero in hepatitis C, and this is her hat. So for question and answer, I'm going to wear the hat just to make sure I get everything right and all the brain transfer stuff happens. Um, just, a biologic, just a biologic question. Um, where do you think the relapsing virus comes from? Do you think it's coming from liver cells that didn't quite clear it, like the null responders who had that initial response to... GS7977, and then sort of pops back up from the liver? Or do you think it's reservoirs outside of the liver? What, what do you think is going on? Um, I, think the, I think it comes from the liver that isn't completely eradicated the virally infected hepatocytes. And the data for reservoirs is very, very limited. But the best data is if you're having a liver transplant and you go into the transplant non-viremic. So if you treat the patient and they become HCV RNA negative in the serum, then you go into the transplant, throw the liver in the bucket, put in a new one, that liver doesn't get infected. Virus doesn't come back. Now, it's not 100%, but it's pretty close. So I think there aren't reservoirs. It's not like HBV or HIV. You also mentioned the importance of a fatty meal, so I have a question of degree, obviously. Are we talking a regular hamburger or a Paula Deen burger? Well, well I think a Paula Deen anything would qualify. <laughs> My daughter says it comes with two sticks of butter no matter what you're cooking. But it, it is a cup of ice cream, and it isn't fat-free ice cream. So that's the, it's a lot of fat which may sound nice after dinner, but not so good for yeah. breakfast. Two questions from the audience had the same question, essentially. If somebody's on a PI-based regimen, we know from the SMART study that in general we shouldn't stop therapy, but if we were going to treat with a brief course of therapy for hepatitis C, do you think it would be justifiable to stop ARVs during that brief course for HCV treatment? I don't... I personally don't think so. We have no data to answer that. But we know from the SMART study it's a bad idea. We know from lots of co-infected data with interferon that it's a bad idea to have HIV uncontrolled. I would say put them on a more user-friendly regimen if you can. And if you can't, wait the year till the newer drugs are licensed and try one of them. Um, you, you partially addressed this, I think. What is the rationale for leading in with uh, the PEG-RIBA, then adding a direct acting versus initial therapy with triple combination or, you know, consolidation, basically? No, there is no rationale. I mean, you can ask the companies, they'll wave. But Telaprovir did a study looking at a four-week lead-in also, and they had no difference in the outcome. And I think that if Bersepravir had done the same study, they probably would have shown the same thing. What is the only rationale we use? Well, we use it in patients that we're concerned that they won't tolerate the side effects. So doing a four-week lead-in, if they don't have any response, you can say to them, your chance of clearing is low. Do you want to keep going another four weeks of triple therapy or not. But actually, we don't know the answer to the rationale. It was a secret. You know, it's another similarity between HIV. If, if, for those of us who have been doing this for most of the 20 years this course has come, remember there was a time when we ramped up not just the nevirapine dose, but we actually literally staggered when we added the antiretroviral therapy for triple because we were worried about conditioning the patient to get used to this. And that may have been what was kind of going on, see how they tolerate PEG-RIBA and then add the bosepravir. But I think, like you said, um, 
uh, I don't think there's going to be a lot of difference yet if you use Bisepravir. That's what the package insert tells you to do. And, and you may do it in, for your patient. It may be a good rationale. Yeah. We've used it for our patients, many patients, just to see if they want to keep going when you explain the outcome to them. Another question, you know, HIV providers are very comfortable thinking about drug interactions and uh, the at what point are we ready now for, for non-hepatology specialists to start treating hepatitis C, or do we need to wait until there are larger studies that give us more guidance that you would feel comfortable for somebody to just start treating hepatitis C once we have an all-oral regimen? In other words, when do you think we'll, we'll reach a point where we can encourage people to become hep C treaters because they're knowledgeable? In but I think we are encouraging ID physicians to become hep C treaters. I'm a hepatologist, but no, gastroenterologists don't like treating patients. It's time consuming, it's ex incredibly exhausting. You need to see, on triple therapy, you need to review the labs weekly or bi weekly, see the patients often every week. It's a made, it's just the sort of thing hepatologists and ID guys do, you know all work and little of the other stuff. And so I think my only caution is patients with cirrhosis. You have to determine if the patient has severe liver disease because if you don't, you may knock the patient off and that's a bad thing. And the last question from the written questions if we are going to start doing that, many of these studies use different formulations of interferon. Is one better than another? Which one are we supposed to be using? So the package insert says you use the 40KD with telaprevir and the 12KD with bisepravir um, because the company that owns bisepravir owns the 12KD. There have been large head-to-head -head, head studies, not really identical, that show there's little difference between the two. Okay, Dr. Vernon. Hi, Andy Vernon, CDC. I want to thank you for a very interesting presentation and for joining this group. In the past, my experience was in the distant past that when I would call the hepatology office from the HIV clinic, it would be hard to get the phone answered. And uh, I'm glad that's changing. I'm though confused, and there are several things that confuse me, and, and you might be able to help or maybe I need to do more background work. First, it's clear that patients on heart appear to do a lot better than the patients who aren't on heart. At least that's the data we have so far. Now, of those patients who are on heart, um, th those are the patients you would think are more capable of making fibrosis. I would have thought that the patients who are really immunodeficient don't fibrose as well. That's certainly our experience in TB. And, and so I'm puzzled. And then there's the interaction with alcohol. Well, alcohol obviously is its own toxin, and the fibrosis, I, I don't know, you can't separate the fibrosis of alcoholic hepatitis from, and, and disease from the fibrosis of hepatitis C disease. So th that further confuses me. And then I should order a fibroscan. Um, there, I'm just, the name fibroscan already makes me think, that this, this, is this really going to tell me about fibrosis? Or, and so the question is, which of those various options? Obviously, biopsy is the most definitive and the most invasive. So I'm wondering how secure are you with those less invasive options for diagnosis of those patients, which I want to be able to do, identifying those patients who are the, the most severely affected. So maybe that's too global a set of questions for this meeting. But <laughs> you, have, you have 10 seconds. To I will give you the cliff notes. People do do better on heart. There's less liver fibrosis on heart than off it, unlike TB in the lung, and there's plenty of data for that. One of your slides shows there's less liver mortality. I took it out because I didn't have the time. I think it's slide number three or four. Number two, alcohol and hep C. Alcohol causes pericentral fibrosis, chicken wiring of the liver. Hep C causes portal fibrosis, totally different. However, alcohol and hep C do progress 
alcohol makes hep C progress more. So you can't drink if you're on, if you have hep C. We actually wanted to do a study. If you have a big drinker, stop. If you're a non-drinker, don't start. If you're a mild drinker, one for a woman, two for a man per day, what happens to your hep C? The study section gave it a 101. The NIAAA said it was unethical. So we don't have an answer to mild drinking. I tell that to my patients and they decide what they want. Fibroscan. If a patient has a platelet count of 90,000 and spider nevi, you don't need anything. They have cirrhosis and portal hypertension. If a patient has a fibrosure that says F4 or an APRI that says F4 or a FIB4 that says F4 cirrhosis, it's 80% accurate. If it says F0, it's 80% accurate. If it's in the middle, it's 30 to 50% accurate. So you can, I use it in a way as a bridge to telling the patient you really need a biopsy or to say we can wait. Fibroscan, there are only 13 in North America, so obviously they're not available. They're not approved by the FDA. We have one. We use it as a research tool. I think we, the ID docs want more non-invasive tests. So you have to know which one to use and when to give up and talk to your hepatologist. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Peters. Thank you. Now, before we introduce our next speaker, we'd like to finish the demographics questions. Can we have the next demographic question, please? Okay. Are you a member of an underrepresented minority group, yes or no? Okay, thank you. Next question. What percentage of your patients are members of a number represented minority group? Not too surprising. So those of you who are involved in education and mentoring, we need to obviously get more people to go into HIV care from these populations. Next slide. How many years have you attended the full-day IASUSA course here? Great, so we have quite a few people that this is their first or at most fifth course. 